Well, good morning once again. Let's dive in to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book about living for God in the face of opposition, and sometimes that can be hard, can't it? We know what that's like. Sometimes it's really hard to actually do the right thing. Dirk Willems was a recent convert in Holland in 1569. In the course of fleeing from religious persecution, he is being chased by an officer of the law who falls through the ice that Dirk has just recently, because of extended captivity, he's a bit lighter, he's been eating prison food, skirted across the top of. His pursuer calls for help. What would you do? Dirk turned around and pulled his pursuer from the water. He was then arrested and burnt at the stake. Sometimes it's hard to do what God calls you to do. To be the the one at school amongst your peer group that stands up for the kid who is being bullied, who stands against your peers, who becomes a target yourself. To be the one who becomes aware of the need of that, you know, complex person that you work with. But you step forward and you meet that need. Or you're approached at work by a colleague who is a rival for a coming promotion and they ask you for your help. What do you do? Sometimes it's hard. It's hard. We face opposition from outside, from a world that is opposed to us and to the God we serve. And sometimes it's an opposition from inside, where our fears and our own self-interest come into play. And we think, surely God couldn't be calling me to do that. Surely God couldn't expect me to pull my pursuer from the icy waters. Where do we actually find the courage to do what is right? Well, we're going to answer that question this morning from 1 Peter. Uh, Four C's. We're going to look at contrast, conflict, courage, and conviction. So let's dive in to the icy waters of 1 Peter. No, not the icy waters. Let's go. Now, 1 Peter stresses the whole identity that we have in Christ. It stresses, Peter writes to us, the Holy Spirit's word through Peter to us is all about who we are in Christ. It's threaded through his work. And so you might remember, second verse, after Peter introduces himself, he speaks of the church as those who have been chosen through the foreknowledge of God reaches a climax in chapter 2 verse 9 where Peter drawing on Exodus 19 and the language of Israel he says for you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation a people of God's own possession he gives us an identity and because he gives us that identity that is ours by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus through his death and resurrection we have a purpose That is God's purpose because we are God's 
people. And he tells us here in the passage that Sharon read for us, 3 verse 9, he says, to this you were called. What is the this? To blessing. Here he is anchoring us as God's people, Christians around the world, into God's big picture. To what God is doing to restore blessing to his creation. So you may remember right at the start, right at the start of the book of Genesis, we have Adam and Eve choosing their way against God. Choosing to become God themselves, but falling from his grace into sin. And God's answer to the curse that came with sin is to bless. So he calls Abram. Genesis 12, and the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name grace. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Here, God is actually saying he is answering the curse that our sin brought us justly by blessing through Abraham and his people. Now, this reaches a climax in the Lord Jesus Christ. But beyond that, God's purposes continue. And here, Peter anchors us into God's purposes to bless. He tells us that we are to be a contrast community, a community that stands out, not a community that blends in, not someone who, or a people that assimilate but a community that stand out. We had to be different. You might remember uh, the Last Supper, the account in John's Gospel. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And as he is there, he gives them a new command. Do you remember what the new command is? Love one another. And then he tells why. He says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The love of the Christian community because of the love of their Lord and Saviour marks us out. And here, Peter echoes, I think, the words that he heard from Jesus' own lips that evening. And he says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. That's the character of his people. That is what we are called to be, to be a community that people walk in. If you're visiting this morning, hopefully you go, wow, these people love each other. These people care for each other. They're not crawling over each other to get to the top, but they're serving one another. Love one another, be compassionate, be considerate, be sympathetic, humble. We are called to be a community shaped by his love and his grace. But not just in here. Jesus doesn't call us out and be separate, to be distinct and to be apart. We are to be distinct, but not distant. To be separated from, but not exclusive of. We are meant to be in the world, but not of the world. We're meant to have a a different attitude. Our attitude as we live amongst our neighbours is to be a blessing. 3 verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. In contrary, repay evil with blessing, 
Because for this, to this, you were called. We have a different attitude. We want to get out there, Peter says, to bless. And as we do that, we do that through being different in our behavior. Our behavior reflects God's character. So back in chapter 1, Peter goes back into the Old Testament book of Leviticus where God says, be holy because I am holy. Our character, our nature as people, as a community is to reflect our God and our behavior is to be different. Chapter 4, verse 3. Peter calls us by contrast to live different lives. He says, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, that's like just throwing yourself full on into sin. Lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, literally drinking parties, detestable idolatry. Peter is saying, that is not how you are to behave. Not lust, not orgies, not drunkenness, not carousing, not seeking after other gods, serving other gods, being different. Now, lots of people, and maybe you this morning, you kind of think, sounds like being a Christian is pretty boring. (laughs) Really, isn't it? That's all the good stuff. So I better sort of party hard and then convert at the end so I get to go to heaven and I can party then so I can have the best of both. What's, what's Peter actually say? He said, the time that you had doing this was enough. You've spent enough time. If you've spent five seconds doing it, you've spent enough time. But surely, surely these, these rules... Taking my freedom away. Well, let me, let me explain to you a little bit. Let me just digress just a, a fraction. We have a world that is obsessed with being free. But can I say, being free is not the absence of constraint. It's not throwing off everything. Because none of us are free in that sense. None of us are free like that. A fish that throws off the constraints of living in water is not free, is it? It's dead. A fish in water is free. I love swimming, and recently I was swimming off a Voca beach in New South Wales. It's one of those big sort of C-shaped bays. So when you're in the middle of the water, swimming from one headland to the other, you're about 50 or 60 metres off the coast. In about 10 metres of water... And I was having all sorts of large, dark shapes with sharp teeth and fins going through my head. If you've ever seen a shark in water, they are incredibly free. And I am just aware of just how unfree I am. 50 metres off the coast, I'd have no hope. Having the right constraints is true freedom. And love, love gives us the right constraints. You're never more free than when you're in love. Yes? You never feel better when you are both the object and the lover. When you're in that relationship and you will give up stuff to be in that relationship, won't you? Okay. 
Imagine you're single and all of a sudden you've got the new girlfriend, the new boyfriend. They said, let's get together on Friday night. Let's go do something. Ah, oh, but I normally hang out with the blokes on Friday night. Well, if you're in love, the blokes, you know, what are they, sort of mates before dates? No, it doesn't work. It's always dates before mates when you're in love. She wins every single time. Freedom is constrained. But is it a burden if love drives it? Jesus calls us to give up our freedom, to serve, literally, as God's slaves, chapter 2 tells us. But is a slavery of love binding ourselves to him because he gave his freedom for us the one who had all power who had all sovereignty who had the creative power to bring everything into being and sustain it he gave that and made himself a man and was obedient to death on a cross this one who loves us this much, calls us to love. And as we love, we obey. We are called to be a contrast community, but that contrast will inevitably bring us into conflict. It will inevitably bring us into conflict with our community because people don't like difference. Now, we're okay with difference as long as it's difference in an approved kind of way. Okay, you can be different as long as everyone else thinks that your difference is cool. But if you're different in a way that we don't think is cool, all of a sudden, we're not okay with you being different. Think about, you know, this is becoming less different in our society, but Islamic women wearing the full hijab. How does it make you feel? We're not comfortable with difference. That's a cultural thing for us. It's a religious thing. It has lots of baggage. And I'm not saying we should feel uncomfortable. But it is something that provokes that feeling. It is an unacceptable difference within our culture. Not saying it should be, but saying that's how it is perceived. But here Jesus, through Peter, is telling us that as a contrast community living for Christ, we will be different and they will not like it. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Paul, uh, Peter writes, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do what is good? Who? But even if you should suffer, who's going to harm you? It makes no sense for people to persecute Christians. It makes no sense to persecute a people who are on the front foot to bless their neighbours. But they will. And Peter prepares us for that. Because our world does not deal with difference well. The pressure is applied to get us to fit in, to get us to conform. It's the same now as it was then. 3 verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil. Or insult with insult. 3 verse 13. Who is going to harm you? 14. Even if you should suffer, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. There is threats. There is fear. There is evil. There is slander in verse 16. The ones who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ 
and in 4 verse 4, they are blaspheming. Literally, they're heaping abuse on you, but that abuse is going to God. They are blaspheming God because of your good behavior. That opposition, Peter is saying, expect it. So how do we live? How do we do this? How do we find the strength when our world tells us the good life is found not in obedience to Christ, but with fitting in with everyone else and chasing what they chase, to diving in to the list that uh, Peter gives us in 4 verse 3? How do we do it? Does it cost too much? Does it ask too much? Who should we believe? Should we believe what the world is saying? Should we believe what our fears, harnessed by our own sinful desires, are saying? Or should we believe what our God is saying? Where do we find the courage? Brings us on to our third point. We find the courage not in ourselves. And when I'm speaking here of courage, I'm not talking about our courage. I am talking about the courage of the one who was courageous for us. You see it in almost every book of the New Testament. Woven through, you find the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'm not an expert rug weaver. This isn't a picture of me. But I understand that the the frame that she's, built, she's building the rug on, she's weaving on, is called the warp, okay? And you weave the woof that way, okay? The whole rug only stays together if you've got the warp in place, okay? Those white threads that are just permeating through. It's the same for what Peter writes, it's the same for what Paul writes, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that structure that gives their truth its real substance. It is a thing that permeates the Christian life. They see our behavior, but what gives it the power is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They see our courage, but what gives that is his courage for us. 3 verse 18. Peter tells us that the Lord Jesus he suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And in case we think he just suffered, verse 18 he tells us he dies. But the amazing thing like Collins uh, kids talk out the front, we get to benefit from the victory of the Lord Jesus. This is where you get these crazy little passages. So uh, keep your Bible open, keep your brain working. Let's dive into some of the more confusing bits of the New Testament, can I say. Jesus is made, put to death in the body, made alive by or in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. There's bits where I would love to sit down with Peter and go, mate, what on earth are you talking about? Maybe you feel like that after my sermons. You want to pull me up after it? Please do. Please do. But I want to ask Peter, what on earth is this spirits in prison? You know, no one else talks about this. It might be referenced in Jude Jude verse 6. Maybe. 
Who are these spirits in prison? They don't get a Guernsey at any other part of Scripture. So what's Peter actually saying? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you go back to Genesis 6, you'll find the story of Noah. He could be talking about the ones that the writer of Genesis talks about as the sons of God who fell in love with the daughters of men. Okay? But they don't really get mentioned between Genesis 6 and, and here. It could be the rebellious humanity that would not repent at the preaching of Noah. But whoever they are, whoever they are, they are opponents of God. They are opposed and they are held in prison for judgment. And Jesus goes here in the life given through his resurrection by the Spirit to proclaim his victory. He is not preaching the gospel and calling them to repentance. This is like the victory lap that Jesus is doing. You know, it's the end of the grand final. They've got the, they've got the trophy. They're holding it up above their heads. This is what Jesus is doing over the opponents that he has defeated. He is proclaiming his victory. And the father vindicates him further. We see here. He talks here about baptism. We'll come back to that. But he talks about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subject to him. The Lord Jesus who suffered, who died, was victorious. And he proclaims his victory over his opponents and he ascends... And he reigns over every power, good or ill. He reigns over everything. This is the path that is set before us. This is the encouragement of the one who did this for us. Going back to 3.18, he tells us it is the righteous for the unrighteous. If you haven't worked it out, the righteous, that's Jesus. The unrighteous, that's us. He did it for us. The Lord Jesus suffered for sins, not for his, because he's righteous, but for ours. He did it for us. And we, by faith, claim his victory. It's like Ethan and Nathan. We were cheering them on, uh, but the... The two lads who did all the work, they got none of the glory. Well, Jesus gets the glory, can I say that? But we are like the, the smaller guys piggybacking on the Lord Jesus. We are the ones who get to benefit from all his hard work and our faith is merely us holding on so he can achieve his work for us. Peter here uses an image. He talks about Noah and the ark and salvation through water. And then he takes that image and he talks about baptism. See the water connection? So who is Jesus in his image? Noah saved eight through the ark. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the ark. And baptism symbolizes us passing through judgment and death, going down into the water and then coming up 
rising to new life. And we do that because Christ did it for us. Baptism is the sign. Notice here, it says the thing that actually saves us is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's not baptism itself. Baptism is a sign that points us. And here he's telling us that the courage that we need to live for Christ is the courage that he showed for us. It's the victory that he won for us. It's the reign that he now exercises for us. So how do we live lives of conviction? Let me give you three points as we wrap up. We live, we speak, and we trust. 4 verse 1. Since Christ has suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Give you, have the same intent, the same purpose. What was Christ's purpose? Christ's purpose was to bless, was to bring salvation through his obedient suffering. What is our purpose? To what have we been called? We have been called as a kingdom of priests, as God's chosen possession, to be a blessing. Arm yourselves with the same attitude, the same intent, the same purpose, that commitment to carry out God's purpose. To do what he tells us to do in verse 12 of chapter 2, to live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They give God the glory on the day he visits. Peter tells us in verse 2 of chapter 4, we do not live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. When you go out from here today, this week, do you go out knowing who you have been made to be in Christ? Is that identity front and centre? And the purpose that flows from that, that purpose that you might bless, because to blessing you have been called that you might inherit a blessing. Live out your identity. Live it out in God's strength. Rest in the fact that you have received this identity, not by your own achievements, but by the achievements of the Lord Jesus, by his work for you. Rest in his love and in his grace, powered by his spirit. Live for him, choosing the will of God and not the earthly desires. Choosing to live separate, apart, but engaged in order to bless. We live, we speak. 3 verse 15. Peter tells us, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Literally, sanctify Jesus Christ, the Lord. Set him apart. Serve him only. Set apart Christ as Lord and be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Because if you are living as a contrast community if we are different if we are blessing in the face of cursing we are giving god's blessing in the face of evil if we are not answering reviling with reviling if we are living for him people will say why 
why on earth, when does that make sense? Why would you do that? And Peter says, be ready for that time. Sometimes we can just, all we can do is wait. There's not opportunities to speak until they ask us. But when they ask us, make sure that we are ready. That we can speak of Christ, of his courage for us. His sacrificial death and how the resurrection that is his and ours guarantees our future and sets us free so that we don't live for today. We live in today for tomorrow. Be prepared to give an answer. So we live, we speak, and we trust. Peter doesn't say, be a Christian, all your problems will go away. Be a Christian, everyone will love you. Actually says the opposite. Be a Christian and most people will actually make your life harder. He tells us to be on the front foot though and trust that God is with us. He picks up this psalm. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Our God is with us. He hasn't sort of set us on a task and left us alone. I'll come back in a few years and see how you're going. His eyes are upon us. His ears are attentive to our prayer. He sees us. He hears us. He is with us in the here and the now. And at the end, the one who judges justly will vindicate. 4 verse 5. They will have to give an account. Those opponents, those who blaspheme God because of you, will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But brothers and sisters, because of Christ, we have no fear of that judgment. We, like Christ, can commit ourselves to the one who judges justly and he will vindicate. He will show us because of Christ's perfect innocence that is ours through faith. He will declare us innocent. He will vindicate us. Christ shares his reign with his people. Remember the great Wesley hymn? Uh, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. I've had Christians say, I, I can't sing that, it's too presumptuous. Yes, it is. If that were on our own strength, if that were on our own merit. But the grace of God means that we can come before our Father and He will say, My beloved child. We can come to our brother, the Lord Jesus, on the throne and he said, come and sit with me, come and reign with me. Peter calls us to trust that future vindication. The world may reject us, the world may turn us away, the world may despise us. But Jesus never will. And the Father will never turn us away. And so even though sometimes it is hard, it is hard to live for him. We are opposed from without. We have doubts and fears within. But the Lord Jesus calls us to bless and promises that we will inherit a blessing. 
Brothers and sisters, will we live for him? Will we live with our eyes on the future, that glorious inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for us who through faith are shielded by God's power? Will we live in the courage of the Lord Jesus who won the victory for us so that we need not fear? Who gave us an inheritance that can never be taken? Who gave us an identity that can never be challenged? Who gave us a purpose that we might be part of what God is doing in this world? Live such good lives among the pagans that while they see you, they see your good deeds. While they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace and mercy in sending him sending him for us in our place to bear our sins. The one who for the hope set before him did not, did not scorn the cross, did not turn away. The one who through death conquered and is risen, ascended and reigning on high. Father, help us to see the blessing that is ours, the security that is ours, the hope that is ours and that it can never be touched. By your spirit, work deep in our hearts the victory of the cross that we might know its freedom, we might know its power and as you have blessed us, so we might bless others with our words, with our lives, lived for you amongst them. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.